occasionally you watch a film and your first reaction may be one of a dismissive sneer. Take Clint Eastwood's 517 to Paris. I was actually tweeting my contempt for it for the first half hour. It seemed so daft, so silly to me that I could barely contain my glee at mocking its apparent idiocy. An hour later, I was a sobbing mess, actually amazed at how bold an experiment the film was. Although it may not have been entirely successful, it had at least tried to do something that I had never really seen before, and the emotional payoff was well worth the initial half hour of dismissive twattiness. Another film I had such a reaction to was Jean-Jacques Arnaud's Quest for Fire. The film begins with a group of prehistoric cavemen in makeup that's good but still at first sighting seems a little bit daft doing things that cavemen do eating poorly cooked food having very rough animalistic sex and sleeping around their greatest commodity fire they then get attacked by another group of ape-like creatures and are forced to flee their cave and as their one lifeline has gone out i.e the fire Three of the tribes set out on a quest to get some more. None of this takes place in English, there are no subtitles, just actors in caveman costumes navigating sabre-toothed tigers, woolly mammoths and other tribes. And it's a film that's easily to dismiss, mock even. But Quest for Fire is actually rather good, and once I'd gotten used to it, I sort of become a little bit obsessed with it. Director Anon spent years trying to get Quest for Fire made. It's not really that hard to see why Studer's felt a little bit hesitant at funding the project. But fund it, Fox did, and thank God as well, because I think cinema needs these oddities, the risks that sometimes fail, and sometimes they don't. With the occasional piece of brave investment, we wouldn't have the likes of this or 2001, or even such films as Lord of the Rings, all huge gambles that mercifully pay off. The film is an origin story, an origin of human behaviour and human evolution. Ignore the film's claims to be scientifically sound, it's not, it's more of a fascinating what if, a fantasy retelling of early man's progression from caveman to getting on the road of what we have become now. A rather obvious comparison to make is that it resembles one long sequence akin to the opening of 2001, and it is a fair comparison in all honesty. But crucially, Quest for Fire is very much its own film, and I think it's a rather wondrous piece of work, and the mere fact that it exists is an entirely good thing to begin with. It, one of the crucial aspects, I think, of enjoying the film is to simply go with it. Everett McGill and Ron Perlman are, of course, familiar faces to us now, and this was actually Perlman's first role. And behind those Oscar-winning prosthetics, these are very real performances that you can buy into. The language they speak, devised by Anthony Burgess, clearly has familiar words. And far from just being analytic grunts, there is a clear structure to what they're saying. And although there are no subtitles, through the performances, the reactions, the facial expressions, you are never aware of what is, not, of what is going on. And bizarrely, you don't feel like you need to understand what they are saying to actually know what they are saying to each other. So for when, for instance, our heroes get stuck up a tree with some saber-toothed tigers trying to bite at them, you know exactly what they are saying because you would be saying the same thing, i.e. for fuck's sake, get your ass up here and don't piss them off. And what's more is there is a clearly a dedication that the actors had to their roles. For, and in one scene, we see them take refuge in a marsh. 
And the actual director Nunn's commentary alludes to the fact that the actors simply had to get on with it, wading across freezing water in the Canadian tundra with barely any clothes on. In fact, in some of the scenes, you can actually see them shivering. And most of the time, they are almost completely naked. And the performances are, of course, quite theatrical, arms flailing, loud shouting, everything is larger in life. And it has to be, because one can easily imagine that communication in such time was hardly one of nuanced subtlety with everyone patiently waiting to speak. In fact, everyone who was involved in the film said it was one of the most punishing experiences of their lives. Ray Dawn Chong, who has, um, who plays a role of a character, who's called Ica in the script, I, you, you won't ever hear that mentioned, I don't think, but she, she's gone on record to sort of say that Anon was very much like a kind of a James Cameron type figure where you never really knew what it was he wanted. You were just kind of going with him. And she is literally naked throughout the entire thing. It's only because she's got um, kind of tribal colours on that. You know, she's like, that, that's the only covering that she actually has. And there's some of wonderful pictures I found of her on set just kind of um, with a sleeping bag draped over her, desperately trying to warm her body up. But the actor's willingness to buy into it comes across perfectly in the film you, you, through them i think you find a way of just getting on with it and accepting what you're seeing yeah i think there's more yeah i think there's a slightly more to the film than perhaps we might think in their effort in their quest to attain fire they actually begin to attain knowledge and i think the film has a far more universal message to it we see our heroes meet other tribes who have mastered pottery and and the building of more complex structures and items such as weapons. And we, as a species, continually push to discover. Although what we are watching can be described as primitive, they are essential steps on man's ascension. I dare say a thousand years people will look back at the probes we sent to March in bewilderment at how such primitive things could have possibly gotten that far. Yet the fact that we did and designed these craft is an extension of our human instinct to progress and push boundaries of what we know, and crucially, our capacity to learn. The, the characters also develop emotionally in the film. We see sext in Quest of Fire at the beginning, and it consists largely of the following. If a woman so much as bends over, a man will simply walk over and take her from behind at will. All this changes when the Everett McGill character comes across Dormary Chong's Ica, who with her painted body is clearly from a different tribe. One that is, as we will see, slightly more emotionally and a technically advanced of that of our heroes. At first, McGill's caveman, or Noah as he is called, has sex with her how he wants. Yet Ica isn't simply going to have let him have it on his terms alone. Their first encounter is rough, yet as a bond develops between them, when they eventually attempt attempt sex again it is her who takes command this moment is not just for sex for sex sakes it's sex between two people who are developing a real bond love in fact she wants to enjoy it and they actually do it in the missionary position with him looking into her eyes it might be a slightly crude origin story of relationships but it does define a moment where humans begin to to bond not just to mate and at the end of the film, they look over the land interlocked, she clearly pregnant, and there's a real tangible love that has developed between them. We even see the evolution of humour. A rock falling on someone's head becomes a moment of shared joy, 
albeit at the expense of someone else. But the group develop a sense of togetherness, of shared experience. And again, this is reflected at the end where our heroes return to the tribe to regale them with the tale of their quest. And although the film does compress a lot of this into its timeline, and I'm sure people can debate its scientific credentials until the cows come home, I personally don't think there are any, but it is a film and it's what films do. Quest of Fire was filmed on location in Canada, Scotland and Kenya, and there is a stark but at times beautiful aesthetic to it. Some have found the film to be a rather little too gritty, too rough, but it's an aesthetic that I actually really enjoy. Again, without wishing to sound like an old man, there is a texture to the film that digital simply cannot compete and get near. And what's interesting is how well the locations blend together. I had no idea where it was filmed until I looked it up and there was nothing recognisable to my eyes that ever took me out of the film, such as an iconic location. I know some of the shots in Kenya, they blocked out or kind of shot around Mount Kilimanjaro in the background so that people wouldn't be able to kind of cling onto a landmark. And this approach, I think, works really well. Perhaps one of the film's missteps is a slightly overbearing soundtrack. For instance, in one scene, Noah watches Aika make fire, and it is a moment that is, of course, in the context of the film, hugely relevant. Yet the score seems to bellow the significance at us a little bit too much. I felt for this scene in particular, either just silence or something slightly more subtle would have worked far better. But overall, I love Quest for Fire. It's a real oddity, and it found an audience too. It was a huge success at the time, also winning an Oscar for Best Makeup, and probably deservedly so, I think. It's a testament to the dedication of the actors and Anon's belief in the project. And the end result is a film which manages to go back in time and remind us in part of where we came from. And I think it connected audiences on a deeper level. And certainly, I feel this is the case for me, I find myself thinking about the lot and I have a suspicion it's only going to grow in my estimations with years to come. On a 70mm note, this film had at least 170mm prints made up and to this day still enjoys 70mm screenings all over the world. Um, most mostly, I think there's um, a few actually going on in Ireland at the moment and hopefully one day I might even be able to get to watch it on this glorious format. The house looks just like the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. Up and you said you're here. Uh huh. Well, who did you meet? Who's here? TV people. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh. We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately. What kind of disturbances? I don't know what hovers over this house. Now Steven Spielberg crosses a frightening new threshold.
into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. And the games are over. It knows what scares you. When I was a young boy, pretty much everything scared me. And mostly because I was, for want for better words, a little imaginative. Plain vapour trails were the Martians invading from War of the Worlds, and that was thanks to our teacher when I was seven playing us the uh, War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne. An open cupboard was a gateway to Narnia where the Wicked Witch was coming for me especially and the tree in my new neighbour's garden used to watch me. And on and on it went in scaring myself senseless at the earliest opportunity. And this it has been with me all my life because I regularly suffer from a phenomenon known as night terror and I'm pretty convinced it all kind of goes back to this childhood self-inflicted trauma. So it probably wasn't the wisest of thing as a child when I used to make a point of watching the scariest films I could get my hands on. I couldn't help myself. Aliens, The Terminator, Predator, The Thing. I loved them even though, especially with the case of Aliens, I was utterly terrified. And that was actually thanks to a family holiday to Lanzarote, where bizarrely the resort we were staying on seemed to play the film over and over again over the uh, resort television. And my parents would go to the swimming pool and I would slink back to our chalet. And I always remember being absolutely mortified at the scene where the colonists are found kind of stuck to the wall and this girl has kind of like gloop attached to her face and it always used to scare me to death. Yet films and their ability to terrify us and scare us are, for me at least, one of the medium's enduring qualities. The descent actually made my stomach knot. The screen became too much to bear, yet inexplicably a place where I could not avert my gaze. It is, I wonder, because we know we are safe, that we can carry on, or because we want even more of a thrill to get closer to the danger to make us squirm. Perhaps it's a mixture of both, perhaps it's something else, I don't know. But whatever it is, being scared out of your wits by a film is some of the most fun you can have when enjoying the medium. Sadly, in the modern era, the horror film has largely left me unimpressed. It's either a horror film that's really about mental health, take about the crushingly awful St Maud, or jump scares on jump scares, and I'm looking at you it for that. Poltergeist, however, was a film that did its fair share of terrifying me when I was younger, although the preacher guy from the second one was always the most scariest thing I seem to remember about that franchise. But the original was still a pretty good reason for finding a static television to be a new source of fear and anxiety. Released in the summer of 1982, it was all become known as the summer of Spielberg, whose E.T. would be released a few weeks before Poltergeist. Spielberg on paper at least wrote and produced Poltergeist, but indeed he may have done slightly more. Ever since the film's release, rumours have circulated that Spielberg was the de facto director of the film. Due to his commitments on E.T., he was not allowed to direct, yet this does not 
stop him from being on the set of Poltergeist. Although Toby Hooper was the credited director, Spielberg's involvement has never really been confirmed or denied. It's all very vague. And in 2017, Cameron's assistant and Poltergeist and director in his own right, John Lennetti, pretty much confirmed it was Spielberg who directed the film. The rumours go back in back and forth, and in my opinion, this is a Spielberg film. Watch Toby Hopper and Spielberg films up to that point, and you would be insane not to come to the conclusion that Spielberg is the man behind the camera. And crucially to me, it's important in understanding the dynamics and the construction of the film to attribute who its director was. We begin a large suburban home, the Star Spangled Banner plays as the TV winds down with shots of Abraham Lincoln and the Erie Union Monument. Dad is asleep in front of the tea, mum in bed, and the kids passed out upstairs. The dog does the rounds looking for food to scuff, and then two things struck me. One, this is a lot like the opening of Alien, everybody's sleeping about to wake up in a world distinctly different from the one they have known, and you can actually see on the wall there's some Alien posters. It also sets the scene and the geography of the house, as well as Carol Ann, the young child in the Freeling family, played by Jo Beth Williams. She has a sweet, angelic face, and the camera lingers way too long on her, and we know almost immediately that she is the one we should all be really worried about. How do we know this? Well, the film's called Poltergeist. Hitchcock would have done the same. The Birds, Psycho, Frenzy. He knew the power of the title, and so does Spielberg. The film's title is a menace. She's the cutest of all them all, and something bad is going to happen to her, but not quite yet. Because first you have to get to know the Freenings. Dad Steve likes to watch the game with his mates, and is the number one estate agent for the development in which they live. Mum Dina is a housewife managing the home and the three kids. Robbie is the middle son who argues with his sister Caroline and oldest sister Dana. And this is a typical Spielberg family. There's food fights, mocking, moaning, shouting, laughter. It's not a broken home as we've seen before. It's a happy one. And through observing the daily rituals, the film positions us exactly where it wants us to be. Which in this case is the seeming never-ending climb to the top of a roller coaster where we're upon the real fun would begin. Things start off fairly benign, chairs move on their own accord, spoons bend, and could it be that the house is merely having a bit of fun? 
Well, of course it's not. The haunted house is typically a huge mansion covered in cobwebs, but that's not what any of us grew up in. Nope, this is happening now. We recognise the people in the surrounding, and God only knows how scared people were of their kitchens days after seeing this film first time around. But it's pure Spielberg. His films work because he knows how to build worlds so effortlessly. You can travel from the domestic to the otherworldly without ever really stopping to consider how you got there. It just happens and you go with it. The film gives you further indications something's afoot. Bad weather near the house, a thunderstorm causes the children to stay awake with dad explaining you can tell it's getting further away by counting, something my dad did actually. And of course the inverse of this is used brilliantly later when Robbie realises the storm is actually getting closer. Look, I am the one who has had to live with this freaky thing all day and nothing bad happened. It's like another side of nature, you know, a side that you and I are not qualified to understand. When you overreact like this, it makes what happens much too important. No one's going in the kitchen until I know what's happening. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand. And in these opening salvos, we get to see the terror from the perspective of children. And you can empathise with what's making them scared. The sound of wind against the windows, or those eyes staring back at us. The fear the film induced is universal in adults and children alike. Spielberg has had an uncanny knack throughout his career of making us scared of things we didn't even know we should be scared of. Jaws made us afraid of the water, and Poltergeist made us scared of the TV. In the post-war world, the TV became the focal point of most homes. It was positioned in the middle of a room. We organised our furniture around it, with the prime viewing spot normally being taken by Dad. It catered for the kids in the morning and the adults at night. Is the ultimate symbol of suburbia. Yet here is the portal into a netherworld where the devil might live, and it's coming for your kids. And how many times were you told as a child not to sit too close to the television? As that hand comes out to grab Caroline, it has to be one of the most iconic moments in horror, possibly also American cinema. Seeing it again it is strikingly effective in its simplicity. It still looks good and it has the malicious intent that feels so visceral. And this film also knows how to put the fear of God into the adults as well. Child abduction is any parent's worst nightmare and Poltergeist covers this base. Post the Madeleine McCann case, there is a generation scarred by what happened to that child, both children and adults alike. And Poltergeist has an eerie way of being able to tap into the contemporary form of terror, that most notable case has left us with. And we always posed the question, you know, how many times I heard adults saying, God, you know, how would I, they feel if it happened to them? And, but once the action does kick in, Poltergeist becomes a far less effective film than its opening. I think it's here that the film departs from being a horror film into a fantastical thriller. And here I believe also is further evidence of Spielberg's influence. 
When I see the ghostly aspirations come alive, the spooky wisp-like effects moving through the house, my immediate port of call is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there's a kind of similarity into how these creatures crash into the real world. In Raiders, it's the Ark being opened. In this, it's a cupboard. In a bizarre way, I can believe that Indy was an actual person in the world of Poltergeist, in a universe whereby reality and a kind of spirit world exists side by side and occasionally intersecting with each other. Interesting too, the Frennings don't pursue a traditional Judeo-Christian solution to their problem. There's no priest turning up to form exorcism or the family scouring the Bible for clues as to what has taken Carol Ann. Instead they turn to science for answers and enlist some help from the local university. Has there been any publicity about these events? No, absolutely nothing. Can you be reasonably sure of not letting any get started? It's the last thing in the world we want. And we haven't even gone to the police. Hmm. Would your family welcome a serious investigation of these disturbances by someone who can make first-hand observations? Dr. Lewis, we don't care about the disturbance, the pounding and the flash. Screaming music. I just want you to find our little girl. Because, of course, the film needs to explain what is actually happening. And this is often the curse of the science fiction horror film that we have to have reason and logic behind what's going on. Yet, what these people are also here to do is to give us a way of getting Carol Ann back, which, of course, is what we know has to happen. For me, those moments can make or break these type of films. In Poltergeist, I was prepared just to go with it. And ultimately, the film becomes about a family trying to become reunited. I feel it departs the shock value of the horror for something far more fantastical, and it does largely work. Sure, we have scenes of objects and toys flying around the room, but we also have some rather brilliant use of simply scary stuff. In one sign, Diana stands outside the room that's been sealed off. And perhaps you see her wonder, has the evil thing gone? Perhaps my daughter is there, it seems to be quite quiet. She opens the door and we hear a gruesome noise and the door slams shut. <laughs> no, hell is still in the house. And it's a, it's a great moment in a film that becomes more and more effects heavy. Spielberg is great at getting his actors to react, and in Poltergeist, the horror and the sheer what the fuck is written all over their faces. The looks off screen as to what is coming towards them, their fears, their terror, perfectly complement the effects, because the latter never overwhelm the film to a degree that often happens now. Indeed, Poltergeist is an interesting film from an effects point of view. There was only so much that could be done at the time with the effects and the equipment available, and the limitations allow Poltergeist to never go truly down the rabbit hole of full-blown effects bonanza, because it can't, it literally can't do it, and it's a better film because of that. We don't get to go into the netherworld to get Carol Ann, it's left to our imaginations, and when we hear the beast lurking in there, might be Satan himself, and he may be disguised as a child, who really needs to see it? You can just dream it up in your own twisted mind and torture yourself afterwards. 
And the, the film does actually have some fun with good old-fashioned body horror too. One of the scientists has a particularly gruesome face melt episode that goes from gore to frankly ridiculous. Yet for all the fans of horror films, it's a grisly fun moment. It's a practical effect that reminds me of low-budget horror films, but in a good way, and let's not forget, despite its child abduction, Poltergeist is supposed to be entertaining and fun. But of course there is another reason why all this is going on. And in Jaws, it was commerce that was the root cause of the death we see. The island can't afford to shut the beaches, so along comes Jaws to grab his dinner. In Poltergeist, it's commerce again, for the entire development has been built on a graveyard, and the corporate skullduggery is going to come back and ruin them. I am for what is one's iffy about why films have to explain things to me. Sometimes we should leave it well alone, or worse, the sequel that explains what's happened in the last film. But Poltergeist is a mainstream Hollywood film, and I was surprised when going back to it how much of a product time it was. Its, it's construction is filled with peaks and troughs, an escalation, a winding, widening of scale before slowly taking time to breathe and having some genuine character moments. One of the most effective scenes is when Karen runs through Diane somehow and she can smell and sense her daughter on her body. There's no effect really what happens yet due to the fantastical nature of the film, Spielberg managed to create a moment that could only exist in the context of the film, i.e. a child from another dimension intersecting with the real world and it's a moment that can only occur in the reality and we see in front of us. And it genuinely works. It's a rather magical, emotional moment where a mother is able to connect with her daughter in a purely metaphysical way. It's a really interesting thing. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, to be brutally honest with you. However, object to the film's last 20 minutes. Having apparently defeated the devil, we know something must be afoot, as there's still 20 minutes of the film to go. And Spielberg uses a false ending. Yet in this case, I found myself to be completely taken out of the film. I simply could not accept in any way, shape or form that the family would actually stay in the house. And I know, I get it, but it does seem so daft, so utterly stupid, that the idea that the dad would just leave them two as well for the night is even more dumb. Yet this ending tweaking does contain some of the most visually arresting imagery of the film. Diana moving down a corridor as the, there's a crash zoom effect is quite brilliant and those effects I think still do hold up. Indeed for what is essentially a haunted house film, Poltergeist feels huge. You can tell some seriously wide angle lenses are being used by the distortion at the side of the image and it truly likes, looks like a big film production. I would not hesitate to watch this on the big screen if the opportunity arose. And credit must go to Jerry Goldsmith's score. It's gorgeous at times, and big and daft also when it needs to be, sitting somewhere between E.T. and Alien, its themes and its mood it creates. 
One of my biggest takeaways though from watching Poltergeist came a few days later when I realised how strangely classic Americana the film felt. It has of course the Star Spangled Banner opening, but there's something about the estate that made me think. Near where I live there is an estate that I would estimate was pretty much built at the same time as the one we see in Poltergeist. And the other day I tried to imagine a huge moody cloud over it and wondered if this film could have possibly been made in England. And then it dawned on me, had it been, it would have been absolutely rubbish. It just would not work. We're too reserved because Poltergeist is a big, huge Hollywood film the only, but that only works because of when it was made and who is making it. No one does blockbuster fantasies better than the Americans. They know how to scare you, how to awe you, and how to move you and give you a good thrill ride. And Poltergeist does this. It takes the haunted house film from creaky old mansions in England and dumps it in suburbia with a family you like and recognise. And it could be your own neighbours. It talks about metaphor the metaphysical, spirituality, and in a way which is actually engaging and devoid of babble jargon. And above all, it's about a family that you like trying to get back together. And with all its effects and whatnot, gives itself time to breathe and have some real depth and emotion. It looks great on Blu-ray. It's only, my, my, my slight concern about the film is that on Blu-ray is that this is only a um, 25 gig disc and I'm, I think when I, I kind of actually checked the actual size of the film it's about 20 gigabytes which is actually quite low for a blu-ray so I'm wondering if it could be given a UHD remaster and a kind of an, an upgrade on blu-ray too. Um, sound wise I think it really would benefit from a Dolby Atmos soundtrack I think you could really do some fun things with that but overall it's a it's a fine looking film it has a real filmic quality to it that I really enjoyed. Okay some 70mm notes on this Apparently you could see a 70mm double bill of this in New York that, that consisted of Poltergeist and E.T. And in 2017, 70mm prints of Poltergeist, Tron and the Dark Crystal and E.T. were found and apparently been playing at various revival theatres in California. Indeed, it does seem it quite, plays quite a lot in various 70mm engagements, so if you live in America, please do report back if you got to see one. I would like Miss Schlegel, Margaret, to have Howard's End.
heard two ladies talking of love. <laughs> no, no, we huh? were continuing a serious discussion. I could scratch that woman's eyes out. Why, if it isn't Henry, aren't you going to say hello? No, Mrs. Bath. No, I don't. Just you and me. Don't take up a sentimental attitude over the poor. See that she doesn't, Margaret. The poor are poor. One is sorry for them, but there it is. Everything's got spoiled for you, hasn't it? Okay, so one of the points of doing this types of episode is to try and find films that I've never seen before and to try and, where possible, go a little bit away from what I would normally perhaps want to watch or even like to watch. And I decided to pick 1992 film Howard's End. And I must say that when I talk about this, there will be spoilers. Um, so if you haven't seen Howard's End... Um, and um, you want to, you might want to be aware of the fact I will be kind of uh, spoiling it quite considerably during the course of this review, but Merchant Ivory were once described by Alan Parker as being the Laura Ashley of filmmaking, and it is a slightly unnecessarily mean comment, and it's the kind of remark that I actually despise when it comes to artists talking about other artists, um, to me, film should be about diversity, different styles, different sensibilities. And you might not, what isn't for me might be for something else. And if they enjoy it, then, you know, good luck to them. Um, I must also uh, comment that um, Ismail Merchant made a rather brilliant retort to this comment that said that his films would last a lot longer than Alan Parker's. Um, which in the case of god-awful things like Bugsy Malone, one can only hope. But nonetheless, really, Merchant Ivory hadn't really featured much in my film-watching life. And everyone knows what you say when it's a Merchant Ivory film. It's a brand, and the pair made expensive-looking films on small budgets. Normally, they would pick up material that was in the public domain, and actors more often than not would take pay cuts just to work with them, and more often than not would be rewarded with um, award nominations for their efforts and I recall in the early 90s and oh finding it all rather annoying that it was all a bit stuffy and lovey darling but in truth I'd never really seen any of the impossibly clips here and there and I would think I was just being contrarian for no reason that I thought film should be something that these were not and that was that and how stupid I was. The fact of the matter is Merchant Ivory do reward you with repeat viewings yet sometimes the, de de the desire to do so may be hard to summon. I chose Howard's M, namely because it had a Criterion release, and I was reliably informed it was a rather good film. On first viewing, I thought I had picked a complete turkey. I honestly found it silly, inconsequential, and I didn't really understand why people in it behaved the way they did. I was loathed to go back to it, yet go back to it I did. And although I was far from loving the film, I did find myself beginning to admire it a great deal. It's a veritable veritable who's who of lovey darlings as Emma Thompson, Anthony Hopkins, Vanessa Redgrave, Helena Bonham Carter and oh someone called Samuel West but of, of course everyone except West is posh and ever so uptight and at first I thought I found this to be the film's weak point. I felt cold and distanced by it 
However, on second viewing, I had a bit of an epiphany regarding Howard's End. The character's inability to actually express how they feel and what they think is very essence of the film. Their silence, their quiet rage, their anger and desires are actually what the film was about. And on second viewing, it began to connect with me in a way I did not see coming. The, two, the story consists of three families. The Shigels, consisting of Helen and Margaret, played by Helen Bonacarta and Emma Thompson and the Wilcox family, headed up by businessman Henry Harry, played by Anthony Hopkins, and the best family, which consists of Leonard and wife Jackie, who are decidedly working class. Over the course of a few years, they come in and out of each other's lives, with Margaret eventually becoming engaged and married to Harry, whose wife Ruth has befriended Margaret and died sometimes before leaving her the family house, the titular Howard's End, Fleeting in and out of Helen and Margaret's life is the poorly played Kirk Leonard, whom Helen and Margaret take upon themselves to help after he leaves his job on the advice of Harry, who has heard the company works for is about to go under. It doesn't, and Leonard and his wife Jackie end up impoverished. Things are further complicated by Helen's attraction to Leonard, which leads to tragic consequences for all concerned as the group's lives intersect. One thing I love is being wrong about a film, and I was wrong about Howard's End. I can safely say from the off, it would not be from everyone. My main complaint from the first time round was I found it hard to see what anyone in the film actually would want to spend time with the other. The relationship seemed distant if somehow the screenplay somehow had missed out some of the lines of dialogues or motivations for behaviour. It felt disjointed, muddled, and began to annoy me if I'm totally honest. When I went back to it, however, I did find the film far more engaging because Howard's End is ultimately a film about class that actually managed to say something about class structure and hierarchy. Ian Foster wrote the film in the novel, sorry, in 1910, and one can easily imagine how uncomfortable it made its readers feel. Class and its presentation thereof in film can make for truly hideous viewing. You need only pick one Ken Loach film to know everything he has to say on the subject. It's repetitive agi-prop bore fest from a liberal darling cherished by exactly the type of people who you think would love Ken Loach films, i.e. upper middle class Guardian readers who somehow feel like they're getting an insight into the working class lives of British people. Foster, and indeed the film's take, is something far more interesting. Then it comes into Margaret and Helen's lives by pure accident. Helen takes his umbrella at a music recital and Leonard nervously knocks on the door to retrieve it. His little barrister and awkward and Helen and Margaret insist that he comes back for tea and a chat. Their motives are not quite clear, or at least to me, yet you get the impression, however, they are being a little kind of liberal guilt about him, as if rather patronising Leonard is a man they can help, although he has in no shape or form actually asked for any. I wondered whether or not Helen was fetishising Leonard seeing a nobility by the fact that he had to actually work hard for a living. She does eventually become his lover and will ultimately have a child with him, but more on that in a bit. You will read that the character of Helen is headstrong, which is in reality exactly the type of description that she herself is railing against. This is a time, don't forget, when women had a place. They did not have the vote and Foster and the film haven't made her headstrong. She is simply a woman who is refusing to conform in a way that her peers deem acceptable. The script is sophisticated, however, to allow a certain amount of condescension on, of Leonard on Helen's part. Her enthusiasm at times does border on the annoying, like she's some kind of puppy dog, like he's some kind of puppy dog or toy. 
but her intentions are far from untoward and are indeed quite noble. I fear you may have thought our letter a, a, a little odd. We're not odd, really. We're just over-expressive, that's all. The more a lady has to say, the better. Ladies brighten every conversation. Yes, I know. The darling's a regular summons. Let me give you a plate. Your company is the Porphyrian, isn't it? Would you call it a, a solid concern? Cake, this big one, or one of these little deadlies? It depends what you mean by solid. We were told the Porphyrians are no go. A friend of ours did think that it's insufficiently reinsured. And advised you to clear out. You can tell your friend that he's wrong. Oh, good. <laughs> wrong, so to speak. How, so to speak? I mean, I wouldn't say he was right altogether. Then he is right partly. Tell your friend to, um, to, to mind his own business. Annie. Mr. Wilcox, Miss Wilcox. What a surprise! Oh, 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 I thought you invited me here as a, for a friendly chat. Instead, it turns out you want to pick my brains about my place of business. Oh, yes, send for him. Cross-question him. Pick his brains. No, no. Are we including you... Miss Schlegel? Shall we go? Helen knows the system in which she lives. Leonard, to her world, is nothing more than what he is. A poor aneba of an underclass ruled by an elite, which is embodied by the Anthony Hopkins' Henry. When Henry says that the company Leonard works for is about to go under, they pass the message on to him, but eventually it doesn't, and Leonard and Jackie almost end up on the brink of starving to death. It doesn't matter to Henry, and why would it? That's just life for them and their kind. Yet Helen is mortified. There's consequences in the way that she sees the world, and she doesn't want people to suffer, motivated to actually do something about it. And when Margaret becomes engaged to Henry, she desperately tries to help Leonard, on behalf of her and Helen's behalf, yet he wants really nothing to do with it, and why would he? Yet not even Henry can escape this one. At the wedding of Henry's daughter, Helen brings Leo and Jackie, and Jackie actually recognises Henry. It appears that in Cyprus at the age of 16, when he was alone, he took her as a lover 10 years before disappearing and eventually just dispensing with her. His excuse was his loneliness. It was an indiscretion, a moment of madness to take a lover. Yet when Helen falls pregnant to Le Leonard, Henry's family are incandescent with rage. How dare this young man do such a thing to her? You see it for what it is. It's fine for Henry to act like a cad and ruin someone. He's from the right stock. One can have such moments and be forgiven. Yet Leonard can't. Yes, he cheats on Jackie, but he's also treated Jackie with more kindness than Henry and with all his money could ever do. Leonard's crime is being poor and he must pay for this. And throughout the film, he is knocked down. He's a fundamentally decent man who managed to go about his life with quiet dignity, losing himself in books and music. He is self-educated, knowledgeable, but stuck in a class system that insulates itself from anything, anything going on on the outside of it. It may seem quite pedestrian now, and indeed, I think I found the film first time around a tad dull, but actually for its time, Forrester's critique was shocking for its audience. 
some of this has of course been lost in time but I still feel Howard's End resonates and the film captures a prevailing sense of the inbuilt hypocrisy of the class system which is feel, I feel a very much still a stable of modern life. If you don't pay your taxes and avoid doing so, you will probably go to prison. If the rich do it, it's just being savvy with their money. And watching Howard's End was a frustrating experience to a degree. You want to shout at the character's time. It sort of makes you angry, especially when Petty Ashcroft's character talks about women getting the vote. You just want to tell, you want someone on screen to tell her to shut up. This is Have another day. Thank you. You are fortunate in your cook. We have found it difficult to get reliable servants in London. It is difficult. Your servants have become as unreliable as we are. And we can hardly expect them to listen to radical discussions at the luncheon table. Well, Annie does very well. Don't you, Annie? You're very patient with us. We never discuss at Howard's End. Except perhaps sport. Oh, but you should. Discussion keeps a house alive. You will laugh at my old-fashioned ideas. <laughs> I will not. I sometimes think it... it would be wiser to leave action and discussion to men. But then where would we be with the suffrage? I am only too thankful not to have the vote myself. Shall we go up for coffee? Yeah, all the emotions I feel were somehow out of place with the film's style and approach. And that's its genius. It creeps up on you under the radar. And suddenly I was there with the film and its characters, reacting to them and caring about them. It's a lesson for me, really, to sometimes films don't come easy and you have to work hard to find your way in. And that was definitely the case here. But what I was madly impressed with was how the film looked. Merchant Ivory Productions had a way of making budgets go far, and this film is visually impeccable and a testament to what you can do with a budget. Good producing is, is about making the most of what you have, and much of the film is set in single locations, sitting rooms and studies and whatnot, and the titular Howard's End, decorated to perfection. The production makes you feel like you are looking back in time, and Tony Pierce Roberts' cinematography is utterly sumptuous. Indeed, it was rightly nominated for an Oscar. It didn't win, but to me, the film's style and grandeur are what elevates it from feeling like a BBC movie of the week to a legitimate cinematic experience. I'm glad the film was made. Today, I think this would have been a mini-series, and today, in fact, it was actually made into one in 2017. But at the time, cinema wasn't kind of secondary to television the way it is now what the film shows as well is what you can do when you have a brilliant screenwriter in this case of Ruth Prower Duala she takes a, a thick text like Howard's End and manages to distill it into a satisfying two-hour film experience it is I suppose a lesson in the art of screenwriting I'm not sure if the film was made today it would seem a tad antiquated possibly even in certain quarters seen as being a bit elitist yet it is a truly good film i don't know if i could say it was a great film and it took me two viewings to really get on board with it but when i did it was far more rewarding experience than i expected the criterion blu-ray is now out of print but this has since been released on other labels i think recently as well olive films might have done a 4k restoration of it and i can definitely recommend picking it up um, on a 70 millimeter guard this was Released on 70mm, not with some controversy as far as I can find. Um, during the process of blowing it up, there was information missed, I believe, from the sides of the, and the top of the image. But people who did see it um, seemed to think that on 70mm it looked absolutely beautiful. 
and it was one of two Merchant Ivory films to be given the seven metre treatment, this with along with Remains of the Day. But overall, yes, definitely, I eventually got round to enjoying Howard's End and I was very much glad that I decided to include it in this festival. Time can be cruel when you're a film lover. I remember quite distinctly when I actually thought that The Goonies was a good film and then I realised as an adult that it is actually terrible and of course there is the inverse. Films like Stalker used to bore me to death when I was younger and now it's one of my favourite films. And when I was programming this year's festival I began scouring the list of 70mm blow-ups and arrived at a film I had not seen for a good 15 years, possibly even longer. Now the 14 year old me had loved this film and I think that might explain why I hate it so much now. James Cameron's True Lies was made in 1994 and it had been five years since the last Bond film and three years since he had made Terminator 2. And I think it's important to make those two points. In the first instance, Bond had gone from being the thing in action films to be usurped by the likes of Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop, and Dalton had given the franchise an edge when the world at large seemed to prefer jokey, sardonic American males blasting their way through the bad guys. It seemed us Brits were a tad old hat. And secondly, it's important to look at the world and how much it changed from the start of Cameron's career to the time True Lies was made. His earlier films, Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, are imbued with the Cold War paranoia. They deal with themes such as the nuclear apocalypse, corporate greed, and a pessimistic and ultimately downbeat vision of the future. Yet the world had changed. The Cold War was over, the threat of nuclear war was gone, and the Soviets were no longer the enemy, so we could all relax. In the 80s were an era defined by consumerism, then the 90s seemed to be about a new form of optimism creeping into the world. The West had begun moving to a more socially democratic worldview aligned with Bill Clinton being elected on a new wave of post-Cold War prosperity. Living in that time did seem to be kind of excitement, a new dawn in which the West's role in the world had changed and was changing a great deal. We had a period of the noble intervention, Kuwait, Somalia, the Balkans, and of course the rise of the new threat, terrorism. In the pre-9-11 world, terrorists were perceived as a kind of nuisance as opposed to a threat to the, our very way of life. And what Cameron does in True Lives is repurpose his previous fears of the apocalypse into a far more comedic villain, jihadists. I'm not going to dwell on the politics of true lies. I have zero problems with terrorists being portrayed as jihadists because the simple fact of the matter is when it comes to major terrorism, they, seemed, they do seem to make up the major bulk of large-scale terrorist attacks. What I, however, can't get around is how misjudged this film is. Clearly, Cameron wants to make his own Bond, Bond film, but he can't, so he's made a mashup of Bond, the 1980s action film, and imbued it with a, a through line of humour that undoes the film at every available opportunity. The opening is pure Bond. Harry Tasker, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, is on a mission to steal some documents at some massive mansion. He goes in, is suave, intelligent, charming, and manages to trick his way into where he needs to be before being busted and blowing everything up in sight. He is helped by comedy sidekicks Albert and Faisal. It's all loud and of course brilliantly choreographed, but sadly it's pretty much all downhill from here. The big joke, of course, is that Harry has lied to his board wife Helen, Jamie Lee Curtis and daughter, that he's in fact an IT salesman. 
Harry keeps missing dinner and various functions. And of course, Helen thinks he's a bit boring. Obviously, the joke is he is actually James Bond. Helen, though, has a secret. She has been groomed by Conman Simon, played by Bill Paxson, into believing that he is, in fact, an agent and that she has to help him do clandestine work for the agency he works for. And that's the joke. She is being groomed by someone who is pretending to spy when she's actually married to one. That's it. The hilarity of the irony is supposed to make all this fun, but the brutal truth, it falls flat for me on every single level. I hate screwball comedies. They feel forced, boring, and a little bit annoying to me. And True Lies feels like a screwball comedy on a $100 million budget. It doesn't make me laugh because it's so fucking dumb. Especially when you see the flashback of how Simon and Helen met. It is so implausible, so ridiculous, that it's actually less realistic than when Harry fires one of the bad guys off a jet attached to a missile at the end of the film. Bill Paxton assignment is of course good, it's Bill Paxton, and he is supposed to be sleazy, yes, but the film has such a juvenile vein of non-humour running through it, that its seediness is actually reflective of the film at large. The scene when Helen dances for Harry is of course now iconic, but it feels manipulated, cruel almost, that this poor woman is being treated like shit, and it's also totally narratively unnecessary. In a film which, at over two hours and ten minutes, is way longer than it needs to be. But this scene really did offend me, not because I'm some woke prude, but how fucking tasteless, how base, how Baywatch, how leery, how unnecessary it all feels. I didn't feel entertained, I just felt like I was watching someone being abused. And having not watched True Lies in years, I was amazed at how much of the plot is taken up with Harry trying to work out if his wife is having an affair. And given for reasons never explained, his deception of her veered further into a kind of unpleasantness, a jealous husband toying with his wife in manipulative ways. The film makes you feel like you're watching it from the point of view of some obnoxious arsehole. And I suppose it's a James Cameron film after all. You know, Laura Murphy, Laura Mulvey talked about the male gaze. This is a tosser's eye view of the world. A mainstream version of Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void in which the screen is a portal into someone else's brain and that the vision you cannot escape from. The action is outlandish, cartoonish, and it's perfectly in keeping with the filming. Cameron seemingly is daring himself to make the scenes more and more ridiculous. The horse chase through a hotel, for instance. And of course, you're not supposed to take any of this seriously. The problem is, however, whereas you had Arnold vehicles like Commandos, which are hilarious just by the sheer pomp stupidity of them, this just feels dumb. Like, what really is the point to it all? The dialogue between Harry and Albert is at times awful as well. Take this for an example, when the pair discuss daughter Dana's virginity. 10 seconds of joy, 30 years of misery. I got married three times, but at least I was ever dumb enough to have any. Yeah, she shouldn't be stealing. I told her better than that. Yeah, but you're not her parents anymore, you and Helen. Her parents are Axel Rose and Madonna. The five minutes a day you spend with her can't compete with that kind of constant bombardment. You're outgunned, daddy-o. You know, it's not just because you're a bad parent. I mean, kids today are 10 years ahead of where we were at the same age. Morning. Morning, Mr. Tasker. I bet you think she's still a virgin. Oh, don't be ridiculous. She's only, what is she now? She's 14 years old. She's only 14, she's 14 years old. Her little hormones are going like a fire alarm. Huh. You know, it's even money, she that physicist on the bike pointer. Oh, not Dana. Oh, not Dana. Denial. It's not just river in Egypt no more, is it, Harry? She's probably stealing the money to pay for an abortion. Why didn't you open the door? Or drugs. 
is this supposed to be funny or is it just a little bit weird? And I know Cameron is not one of the world's greatest writers, but even by his standards, this feels incredibly poor. Of course, the action is handled impeccably. And let's not forget that Cameron is a superb action director. The way he shoots the sheer balls of the man to do of what he does cannot be denied. And the chase scene through the Florida Keys with Jamie Lee Curtis being saved at last minute before the car plunges into the sea ranks up there with some of the most pulse-heightening visuals there are. I'd also go to say there's a degree of experimentation going on with the film visually. And yes, I know Avatar exists, but I've never seen a motorbike horse chase through a hotel. And just when it can't get more daft, Cameron takes actions to the upper floors. It's mental and it looks fucking dangerous to boot. Indeed, in fairness, the final third of the film is pretty spectacular. The pyrotechnics are real, the atomic bomb obviously isn't, but it's still an iconic scene and that Harrier jump jet chase makes for the kind of eye candy modern action films can't get near. Cameron is James Cameron and he's not one of these studio lackeys. I find films now can really lack an identity in the directing department and you could never make this claim for James Cameron. His timing, coverage and framing of action are impeccable, yet the film's flip-flopping between humour, the seagull landing on the van, which eventually sees it tip into the sea, kind of undoes the sequence before showing the bridge being destroyed. But one I think I cannot truly abide in these types of film is the reaction shot cut to someone, normally a janitor on their headphones who hilariously can't hear the calamity of what's going on around them. And yes, it's all present and correct with this. Why do people find this funny? Or does anyone actually find it funny? I can't believe they do. It's just jarring and annoying. And ultimately, I just didn't really know what I wanted True Lies to be. I think the film would have worked if the inverse had taken place with Jamie Lee Curtis being the agent and Harry the boarding one the boring one, and that perhaps that would have been funny, making him become the alpha male we know him to be. But whatever, True Lies is what it is. If ever the phrase leave your brain at the door applies to a film, it would be this. But I didn't want to leave my brain at the door, and I especially don't want it to be assaulted at the level of nonsense we get here. We kept hearing that the film is being prepped for Blu-ray or UHD, but honestly, I believe people have forgotten or at least don't realise how truly god-awful a film True Lies is. But I did actually laugh at the end when Arnold fired the guy from the Harrier jump jet on the missile because we get this quite amusing line. You're fired. But... On the 70mm notes, 16 70mm prints of this film were made and paid for by James Cameron himself. I've no read no reviews um, about the 70mm experience of True Lies and I cannot find any evidence that this film is still shown anywhere on 70mm, which I think probably might be for the best. Okay, so I'm going to be closing this out then with another bona fide 70mm film. And I've picked one that could best be described as divisive. 
Otto Premier's 1960 Exodus is a heavily fictionalized account of the founding of Israel based on the novel of the same name by Leon Uris, adapted for the screen by Dalton Trumbo. I say divisive when I talk about Exodus because quite frankly it is by no means a great film. At times it is an incredibly frustrating one. At three and a half hours it both feels too long in terms of the direction it takes and too short to actually tell the story in its entirety and obviously that's a contradictory statement I would probably it's probably born of the fact that we're so used to in the, the age of Netflix for a story that's been turned into a kind of a mini series or something like that but narratively it has so much to get through and it tells the story of the creation of Israel through a series of protagonists whose journey through the film personalizes the experience of Israel's creation and therefore makes a broader more overriding case for the need for Israel to exist it is a pro-Zionism film and that in itself will make it problematic for many people I think it's worth saying from the beginning, I am a believer in Israel. I think its creation was entirely logical. And even if I don't fundamentally agree with a country being built fervently on religious identity, I still think its existence is fully justified. I also believe that there is no country on earth that is vilified as much as Israel. And I believe a great deal of that criticism is rooted in a very real anti-Semitism. And invariably, it doesn't take long for people to expose themselves in that regard. A former guest on the Master Sinekar master of cinema cast once mused that the conservative cricket critic ben shapiro was in fact a paid member of the israeli government the sinister undertones to such statements often belie the person's belief that the jews secretly control the world and you will i i've even heard people who have called themselves labor activists tell me absolutely unequivocally that isis was literally created funded and controlled by israel and they give you all manner of strange reasons for this happening. It's so they can direct policy in the Middle East, they can control the arms trade in America. And I do think it is just a smokescreen for good old fashioned blaming everything on the Jews. And it's not to say that Israel is a country beyond reproach, but as a figure of unhinged hatred, you would struggle to find a better subject. Which is why I think Exodus is an interesting work, given the time it was made. Now there are rumours, and I say this very, very reservedly, that the Israeli government actually were lobbying behind the scenes for Jewish filmmakers in Hollywood to make pro-Israeli films, and this one in particular. I don't know if this is true, and it actually sounds like one of the bullshit, the Jews are secretly controlling the world type rumours that I've just highlighted above. And if any kind of info, if anyone knows of any information regarding this, I've, I've done some research on the matter, I, I couldn't find anything. Um, there was an article I, I came I came across. Uh, I think it was on the university, California University, or something like that. But um, it was behind a paywall, so I couldn't actually kind of read it in its entirety. But it did seem to suggest there was a lot of lobbying going on in Hollywood, and I, I don't know for sure. And I, again, it's, it's something I'm prepared to be educated on either way. However, Exodus clearly has an agenda, and it wears its heart on its sleeve, which is ultimately where I think some of its biggest issues lie. We begin with Catherine Kitty Fremont, played by Eve Marie Saint, on Cyprus. Her husband, a journalist, has been killed the year before whilst covering a border skirmish with the British Army in Palestine. Kitty goes to see British General Sutherland, played by Ralph Richardson, who knew her husband and tries to persuade Kitty, who is a nurse, that she should help out in the local internment camp for displaced Jews, many of them Holocaust survivors. 
Kitty agrees after hearing some anti-Semitic comments from a British officer, and alone by her own admission, she feels strange among the Jews. She meets a young girl called Karen in the camp, who she takes a shine to and ultimately wants to take back to America to be her adopted daughter. Enter Ari Ben Khan, played by Paul Newman, a Haganah, an underground Jewish liberation organisation, who arrives in Sunderland in Cyprus, determined to sail the ship to Israel with 611 Jews on board to help create the state of Israel. Meanwhile, Karen's boyfriend Dove, played Sal Menio, wants to get to Israel so he can join the more militant Ergun movement to force the British to leave Palestine through violence. Meanwhile, to the United Nations debate in the General Assembly whether Palestine should be petitioned, therefore creating Israel. If Israel comes into creation, what will follow? Exodus is a film of two very distinct half. The first on Cyprus with Ari getting people on board the ship, the Exodus, to sail to Israel, and then in Israel where the War of Independence begins in earnest. The issue with Exodus primarily is the lack of focus, which is often derailed at various times by Kitty and Karen's storyline. The issue is thus. Karen is for all intents and purposes a cipher through which the film can explore its social, political and historical themes. She is a Holocaust survivor separated from her parents. Her mother is believed dead and her father may or may not still be alive. Hundreds of thousands of children were orphaned by the Holocaust. Their plight rightly became a cause of great debate and urgency. What was the world to do with them? In this case, Karen is selected by Kitty for return to America. Kitty calmly tells her that she'd become an American and that she will adopt her. Yet Karen is not an American, and on a broader scale, none of her fellow internees have any intention of becoming anything other than Israelis, even though this at the beginning is not explicitly stated. Karen, would you like to go to America? Of course. Everybody likes to go to America. Then you will go. I'll cancel the rest of my trip and I'll take you with me. And you can go to school there and later on to the university. And if you like it and want to, you can become an American citizen. You mean go right away? Perhaps, in the next week or two. Meanwhile, I may be able to get you out of camp. I'll speak to the general tonight. What's the matter, Karen? Nothing. You do want to go, don't you? Yes, but I mean, I must think about it a little. What is there to think about? I don't know, but it's so important, and I'll need a little time. You know, to think. Take all the time you wish. Kitty? Yes? Don't be mad at me. Of course not. It's getting late. You better finish your steak. Karen is a symbolic figure, a younger girl orphaned by war who can't be resettled anywhere other in a new country, the state of Israel, because in this new world she is an Israeli citizen in waiting. Kitty attempts at trying to assimilate her into another culture are indicative of the very issue the film is addressing. The Jews needed their homeland because ultimately it is where they belong, not in camps, not distributed throughout the world, but in a very, their very own state of their own. As the film progresses, Kitty seems completely unable to comprehend whilst Karen 
wants to stay in Israel and particularly in the kibbutz that she ends up living in. And I believe that Kitty is really the vehicle that we, the audience, are educated. If we don't understand why Israel needs to be created, she has no idea either. And it is either us or her who are being educated in that regard. What we then get through, however, is a character whose role in the film is to have long, often quite dull conversations with people, with each conversation being a mini lesson in geopolitics, religion and history. Subtle, the film is not then in this regard. And even though we get it, Kitty doesn't, which makes her seem increasingly more annoying as the film goes on. I saw the people on that ship. They're not dangerous. They're just poor, miserable people. Why can't you let them go? You must understand that we British have shown throughout our history an extraordinary talent for troubles and commitments. Palestine's a British mandate, imposed upon us by the League of Nations, which makes us responsible for keeping peace in the area. The Arabs simply won't keep the peace if we allow further Jewish immigration. I don't know much about the mandate, but I do know the Jews were promised a homeland in Palestine. During the First World War, Britain needed and accepted Jewish support from all over the world. But in return, the Balfour Declaration of 1917 made such a promise. Well, that promise was reconfirmed during World War II. This chap Ben Canaan probably wasn't lying when he said he fought with us. Thousands of Palestinians did. How can you promise something and then not deliver it? England was fighting for her life in 1917. Nations are better like people in such circumstances. They make promises they're not immediately able to fulfill. During that same crisis, we made the Arabs certain assurances. Hence, they have their claims too. The Arabs are fanatics on the subject of Jewish immigration. Just now, we need their goodwill. How is it ever going to end? I don't know. The whole question now is before the United Nations. I hope they solve it. The sooner I stop operating detention camps, the happier I'll be. That goes for every British officer and soldier I know. Even when Karen is clearly settled, she's banging on about taking her back to America. There is a pseudo-psychological reason. She did apparently lose an unborn child after her husband's death, and Karen is also blonde. She looks like Kitty, and she could be the daughter that she never had. But she can't because Kitty cannot grasp what is really happening, which is Karen is an Israeli now. She is the first generation of this new country, and she, like her country, is going to stand on her own two feet. Kitty and Ari fall in love whilst they're in Israel, and crucially after visiting Ari's family, Kitty realises that she can never be truly part of his life because she is not one of them. The folly of her trying to adopt Karen becomes even more apparent therefore. Kitty is an outsider in this new nation. She can and will be an ally to it. And crucially, we know America is in this in this regard, but she will never truly be part of it because unlike Ari and Carrie, she is not bound to it through history and religion. For want of a better word, she is not one of the chosen ones. And there's no real fault of Eve Marie Saint, but I did find her character annoying. She is a great actress, but her role is expositional to the point of being distracting. Every time the film focused on her, you felt it lost its urgency. It slows down. It became far too ponderous and Trump's and Trumbo's script was at its weakest. 
What is also evident is that during the various long dialogue scenes where Kitty with Kitty, there's no real, a lot, there's not really a great deal Premier actually can do with the camera. So instead, we have incredibly wide static shots of two characters having fairly on the nose, dreary discussions. And I have to say, at times, I was bored by this film. A standout film in this, a scene in this regard is when Kitty discusses with the camp doctor about the nature of caring for a child like Karen. The camera just sits there in a low mid shot for seemingly an age until Karen walks in and effectively concludes the conversation. I'm not sure how it could have been done differently or really if the scene is needed at all. And therein lies the problem. A lot of extra scenes dull to a degree. I get it. I see the reasoning, I suppose, but in execution with a script that is so full of ideology and positioning, I did find my mind constantly drifting away from what I was watching. What I did like, however, was that the film actually got more exciting when it was in Israel. Dobbs seeks out the Ergon, which is run by Ari's uncle Akiva, who is estranged from Ari's father because of the violent path he has chosen. Dov is subjected to an interrogation as to how he became a master in explosives, and it's easily the film's standout scene, with Dov slowly confessing to his role in the Zonda Commando and how he was raped by the guards and forced to use explosives to make graves for the victims of the camp. The scene is brutally raw. The pain of what happened to Dov is almost too horrific to imagine. And let's not forget, this was still relatively recent history in 1960. 15 years is not that long, and one can easily imagine survivors watching it and recalling their own hideous experiences. And I have no issue with films or documentaries reminding us of how awful the Holocaust is. I think it needs to be, we need to remember it in the uniquely evil thing that it was. Now, uh, return to Auschwitz, please. From the gas chambers, the bodies went where? The ovens. At Auschwitz, they had crematoriums only at the last. I mean, before the installation of the ovens, what happened to the bodies? They buried them. How? In, in trenches and holes. And who dug the holes? I don't know. I ask you again, who dug the graves? I don't know. They had demolition squads. At least, uh, sometimes they did. To blow holes in the ground and then dump the bodies in. That is correct. Now, may I tell you something, Dothland? At no time did the Jews use dynamite in the Warsaw Ghetto. They had no dynamite. Do you remember better now? Maybe. So it was not possible for you to learn the use of dynamite in the Warsaw Ghetto. You learned about dynamite in Auschwitz, making mass graves to receive the dead bodies of your people, true? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. Huh? And you saved your own life by working in that camp as a Sonder Commando. Correct? It 
was the duty of those Jews who became Zander Commandos to shave the heads of other Jews. Yes. To remove dead bodies from the gas chambers. To collect gold fillings from their teeth. Yes! consideration that you were less than 13 when you entered Auschwitz. Even so, we must have the truth. Is there anything else? Yes. And tell us. No, I, I won't tell you. Please don't make me tell you. I... Kill me, I don't care. I, I won't tell you. But I do also have a slight issue with the film here as well. The Ergon are a far militant group. They see the British as the oppressors that must be evicted, including violent means. And when the group, as they did, attack the King David Hotel, we only hear it from a distance. We don't see the victims or the result of the attack. And I rather feel the film lets them off the hook. Akiva and Ari talk about violence, yet the film doesn't want to show you it. 96 people were killed in the King David attack. And by not seeing it, I think Akiva is insulated from criticism by the film. I feel it's a sellout moment. If Akiva is committed to a violent struggle, then at least I at least felt Exeter should have been brave enough to show the consequences and what violence actually means. But instead, the characters are insulated. The film wants you to believe in the nobility of the creation of Uriel, yet shies away from the reality of what this really means. And this, and then you have to contrast this by how the film depicts the Arabs. Ari's last son friend from the opposite village is Tahar, himself an Arab. After the UN has agreed petition, Israel can be created, and Ari and Tahar engage in a conversation about coexistence and cooperation. But Tahar has been instructed by the Grand Mufti to assist in the killing of the Jews, especially in the nearby kibbutz where Karen is. He clearly has no intention of allowing this to happen, yet the Arabs appear to have on their payroll ex-Nazi Germans who will be orchestrating the violence in their words, their own unique way, which we all know what that means. Tahar refuses to comply and warns Ari that they are coming and is hung for his apparent treason with a Star of David carved into him. We also see swastikas daubed on the walls around him. Spoiler alert as well, Karen ends up having her, slit, her throat slit by an Arab too. The film therefore has no problem with showing us the results of a violent brutality just as long as it's committed by what it perceives to be the real enemies of peace in the film. Guarantees are one thing, reality is another. Now that they've made my lands and village part of Israel... But either they're still your lands, they always will be. I'm a minority. We've always been friends in this valley, Tom. Minority, majority, we've proved it makes no difference. 
makes no difference. Why have you fought so hard to bring this about? Because we had hundreds of thousands of people with no other place to go. And now where shall my people go? Why should they go anywhere? This is their home as well as ours. Todd, don't you see? We have to prove to the world that we can get along together. If we don't, then the British are right. We cannot govern ourselves without their help. Here again, the film feels problematic. It says Israel must defend itself against violence, yet it cannot show Jewish characters apparently being violent unless it's in self-defense, or in the other case, the excellent prison break set piece in which violence is completely justifiable means to an end. Yet despite this, I do believe Exodus makes a compelling case of the creation of Israel. In Ari, Paul Newman channels a barely contained anger coupled with a sense of religious belief that Israel should exist to finally give the Jews a home from persecution. It's, hard, it's not a hard point of view to see. When we're on Cyprus, of course, and we see the displacement camps with the barbed wire, it's not hard to feel that the Jews have swapped one form of imprisonment for another. And although the British aren't Nazis, the iconography of the camps, like Belson Auschwitz, plays heavily on the mind. These are people who have been repressed and almost wiped off the face of the earth, and are as determined that they should be led to safety. And of course, there are echoes leading the chosen of Moses leading the chosen people. And the film is imbued with a sense that Israel's formation is long overdue. Newman is superb in the film. He is not likable for a lot of the time in Exodus and the film doesn't care. He distrusts anyone who is not one of them. And even though we can see this is wrong, we can actually, I think, empathize with his character. His relationship with Premier on the film was apparently terrible. Newman wanted rewrites to the character and I wonder if this was to make him slightly more the Paul Newman that we knew from before. But Premier was having none of it and the result was a director and a lead who barely talked through the film's production. Whatever it was Newman wanted, I think the result speaks for itself. This is Hollywood royalty in a film that dares to make him somewhat aloof to the audience. And when he's on screen with Eve Marie Saint, the pair look utterly gorgeous and they play off each other well, displaying a genuine sexual chemistry. It's just a pity then that the heavy handness has to really get in the way of the film. It is though Sal Minio as Dove that gives this film standout performance. Exodus is much better when he is in it and Premier seems to make, have the most fun directing the scenes with him in it. His prison escape, along with Akiva, is a legitimately brilliant sequence that had me wondering if the film had been far, would have been far better if it had been less talking and actually spent more time getting down and dirty in the business of making the country. Premier's direction of the film is uneven though. At times, as I've previously stated, the compositions are somewhat stale and unfulfilling, but it benefits hugely by filmed on location in Cyprus and Israel. One cannot deny it's all the better for this. In a way, it validates the film because you know you're watching scenes that have been shot where actual events occurred and you're not distracted by obvious soundstage or match shots. And with a budget of $4 million, which was quite a lot for the time, Exodus never scrimps on the historical accuracy. The costumes and design are all accurate representations of the period. And I'm quite picky in that department. I can often find myself distracted by, say, the wrong weapons in a film. Good Lord, Patton brings me out in a rash at times with its historical inaccuracies. Ernest Gold's justifiably won an Oscar for his score as well. It's gorgeous at times, and a true test for me is that I can listen to it completely independent of the film and it still works. But as the film reaches its conclusion, Karen and Tar are buried together. It's a deeply symbolic scene replete with a closing monologue from Ari that is both a call for peace and understanding 
and a defiant rage against the circumstances that have seen them both in the grave. In the background we can hear gunfire as the battle of Israel begins. It was for me the moment I realised Exodus is a truly unique film and I don't necessarily mean that in a positive way. Taha should have lived a long life, surrounded by his people and his sons. And death should have come to him as an old friend offering the gift of sleep. It came instead as a maniac. And Karen, who loved her life and who lived it as purely as a flame, why did God forget her? Why did she have to stumble onto death so young? and all alone, and in the dark. Uh, we of all people should no longer be surprised when death reaches out to us. With the world's insanity and our own slaughtered millions, we should be used to senseless killing. But I am not used to it. I cannot get used to it, and I will not get used to it. I look at these two people, and I want to howl like a dog. I want to shout murder. So that the whole world will hear it and never forget it. It's right that these two people should lie side by side in this grave, because they will share it in peace. But the dead always share the earth in peace, and that's not enough. It's time for the living to have a turn. A few miles from here, there are people who are fighting and dying, and we must join them. But I swear, on the bodies of these two people, but the day will come when Arab and Jew will share in a peaceful life this land that they have always shared in death. Taha, old friend, and very dear brother, Karen, child of light, daughter of Israel. Shalom. We know from history what happens next. More and more war, refugee camps, and it's hard not to see past the propagandic nature of the film at this point. Despite sounding sincere, we know that these words are hollow to a degree, and propaganda, I suppose, is rarely subtle by nature, and in fairness, I don't think any attempt is being made at nuance here. And that is really the issue. Exit is a pro-Zionist film. It wants to teach you a lesson, and at three and a half hours, it does it over and over again. It seems strange that such a huge Hollywood film can do, can be like this. And that's what I mean when I say Exodus is unique. I think it's a, an interesting historical document. And I can easily imagine and fully understand why people will struggle with it. Simply put, it's never truly awful but it's rarely either that good as well. And I really can't decide if I will ever feel compelled to watch it again, but it is an interesting piece. It looks gorgeous and it's a pivotal film in ending Hollywood's blacklist, especially with the hiring of Dalton Trumbo. It was a huge hit as well. And I think it's an interesting 70 millimeter production because it deals with relatively contemporary history as opposed to many of the sword and sandal epics that were being made at the time, especially Spartacus, I believe. It was shot on Super Panavision 70mm, which is the same format as Lawrence of Arabia and West Side Story and My Fair Lady. And I saw it on 35mm at university. 
and sadly the Twilight Time Blu-ray that I have was struck from a 35mm print, not a 70mm restoration. And sadly the result is a Blu-ray that I don't think does justice to Exodus. And it actually has an aspect ratio of 2341 as opposed to the original 2201. Apparently this restoring the film sound was a nightmare as well. On the Blu-ray you have three options, 5.1, 4.0 and 2.0. I went with the 5.1 because this was apparently the one used on the 70mm presentations. The 4.01 was the one used on 35mm presentations. Apparently, according to reviews, the 2.1 is the best, however, like I but I wanted to try and replicate the experience of seeing it in the cinema as much as I could. It has to be said, I did find the 5.1 um, soundtrack, there wasn't particularly much use of the kind of the rear channels, um, a couple of moments where the kind of the bass kicked in a bit, but overall, I, th I think it's kind of quite a front heavy audio presentation. Um, and I think, sadly, as well, that's as good as this film is ever going to look on any format. I can't really see, I don't even know if there are any more 70mm prints of it. Um, in existence. I know the, the 35mm print was um, sourced from the MGM archive so um, I would assume that if they did have a 70mm print kicking around they would have used that but that is it for um, I, I think it would be one of those films that that, that Twilight Time Blu-ray which was only limited to 3,000 copies as well will, will probably be it unless someone else picks it up. Um, I could possibly see Masters of Cinema taking this one um, or another one of the boutique labels i hope so anyway um because i, I don't want it to sort of like fade away into nothing i, I definitely don't think it'd be getting a uhd release um but that's going to be it then for this year's 70 millimeter festival this will return next year in april which is when it was always intended to be and um, for various reasons um it got dragged out a bit this much but i'm sort of like getting my act together now in terms of how to kind of do these longer shows and how to kind of prepare for them and get them kind of edited and done um if you've got in contact with me as well, um, telling me how much you liked uh, the, the the part one episode. So many thanks for you those that did it. It's definitely a massive boost for me personally when people do kind of get in contact and, and talk about the show, and, you know, especially you know Master McCart as well. So many thanks for those who reached out. So that's going to be it for now. Then um, I'll be back with another show soon. Many thanks for listening. Bye.